Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Why Though, a personal journey through my record collection. This is the show that asks that most important of all questions. Why is this record in my collection? And is it any good? My name is Benjamin Jacobs, the confused owner of the records and the host of the show. This is episode four, The Complete Demos 1980 to 1986 by The Adolescents. As usual, we will begin today with a discussion of how and why I own this record. Unfortunately, I have no insight on where I bought it in this case. I can say for sure that I did not inherit this record from my parents. Cool as they are, I don't think they were into exceptionally obscure 1980s Southern California punk bands. I can say that it was probably purchased during or after 2004, because I am relatively sure it was in that year that the high-quality internet at my college allowed me to download the song Amoeba by The Adolescents, which is a fun song and is on this record. In all likelihood, I downloaded the song, liked it, and then bought the album. I may have listened to it once or twice after that, but soon thereafter, the drive belt on my first turntable snapped, and it was a few years before I could listen to records again. The adolescents were part of the very early punk scene in Southern California, one of the great punk-growing regions of the world. The California punk scene was unique because, in comparison to New York and London, the founders of this scene were not angry art students playing at being dumb, they were genuinely dumb teenagers with no musical training who picked up on the DIY lessons of punk, distilled them down, and made them into the main feature of their music. This album amplifies that aspect of the genre even more. As the name suggests, this record is something like three separate demo recordings from the band's active years, the first of which was recorded when the main band members were something like 15 or 16 years of age, and sounds like it was recorded through the walls of a cheap apartment. The band was never stable, especially in these early years, which is pretty much why it never became a really big name in the punk history books, but it was always greatness adjacent. At various times, the band contained band members who had been or would one day be in Agent Orange, Social Distortion, Nirvana, and the Foo Fighters. Something like ten different people appear on this record, though only four or five were in the band at any one time. People sort of came and went as they gained and lost interest in the project, moved in and out of the area, and stuff like that. There are something like five different lineups involved in this record. Given this situation, I'm not going to go into a detailed narrative of the band's career beyond this short summary. Steve Soder founded the band after getting kicked out of Agent Orange. He pulled in a number of friends and personalities from the highly energetic but still extremely small California punk scene, notably Tony Reflex and Frank Agnew. There was, again, some drama involving an older guy who acted as the band's manager and took off with their advance, but they still managed to record a real album, or something, like it. They broke up and got together several times. In the late 80s, they sort of got more serious about things, and a stable lineup formed, then broke up for the duration of the early 90s, then they got back together. In the 2000s, they were able to stay together for a good length of time. 
This pressing of their demos came out in 2004, though the original demos, of course, are from the beginning of their career. Sadly, Steve Soder died in 2018 at only 54 years of age. Somewhat predictably, they broke up for a few months and then reformed again. As of the time of this recording, 2021 in September, they are still making music together. This album is everything you would expect from that background, especially given the age of the members. It's enthusiastic, chaotic, has very poor sound quality in some spots, some really catchy songs, and some extremely dumb songs. I think it's worth talking about the packaging up front this time, because I think it says something about where this record came from. The album itself is red vinyl, but the outside is basically plain black with red lettering. The red lettering matches the red on the vinyl. There's only one page of liner notes. The front side of the page has pictures of the different iterations of the band. On the back, there are three columns of text. One column includes notes from the three main band members about their experiences with these demos and the time they came from. The other two columns are lyrics, but it's important to note that there are not lyrics for all of the songs on the album. Only nine of the 16 unique songs on the record have lyrics. It's worth saying that there are a couple duplicate tracks on this record. The lyrics that are included do not even include some of the big standout songs like Amoeba, so it's an interesting choice. It's clear that some care and effort went into the pressing of this record, but it was done on the cheap, at the least. The more I think about this, the more I think the whole thing was somewhat intentional. A cheeky jab at themselves and their fans, and even at the use of lo-fi as an aesthetic in general. I cannot otherwise understand why they would spring for colored vinyl, that color matches the text on the album cover, but not for enough liner notes to cover the album's lyrics, including some of the big songs. That said, the repressing of this record was obviously something of a nostalgia trip for them and sort of a bit of fan service for their fans in 2004. Doing it kind of half-assed in this way is sort of an interesting tribute to the early years of the band in many ways. I have to be honest, I'm sympathetic to pretty much all of this, and I find it somewhere between charming and thrilling. To me, there is something extremely valuable about bad sound quality, if it's authentic or intentional. It asks the audience to consider what is most important in a recording, and exposes them to some inkling of the process. It helps clarify that a recording takes a lot of work, and helps them value the product. Of course, most people don't want to hear rough edges. As a member of the History Podcast community, I've seen many complaints around the interwebs about podcasts based on sound quality. These complaints annoy me, especially because they often involve complaints about things like a given host's dialect or speech pattern. A complaint that I find indicates that the complainer is somewhere between spoiled and a close-minded classist imbecile. Luckily, no one has had the lack of foresight that would be required to make such a complaint about my show. At least to my face. Probably because his editor does such a good job, wow. I should just say, this isn't me complaining about kids these days. Even in the days before GarageBand and Audacity made good quality sound production somewhat affordable, I had the misfortune to have many ease the conversation with people who hated music that didn't come to their ears all glossy smooth. Obviously, I view this as a character defect, but I should note that I don't think an audio recording should be low quality for its own sake. Like, they don't all need to be low quality. Like any aesthetic choice, I prefer the choice to be made for a larger purpose and artistic reason. In the case of the adolescents, that choice was made because they were 15 years old, it was the 1980s, and recording music was difficult at the time. For my shows, I prefer minimalist presentation that highlights the content and the process, rather than lush production values, but that doesn't always need to be the case. 
Royfield Brown's work on How Jamaica Conquered the World is easily some of the best history podcasting ever produced, and you can really tell he had a background in music production. It's a joy to listen to, and it's extremely lush. I should also say that, as with any aesthetic choice, doing the same thing forever can get boring and be evidence of laziness. Like if a podcast has bound sound quality and rampant editing errors in the first few episodes, that's just part of the learning process and people need to deal with it, and it gives them some inkling of the character of the person they're dealing with. If it keeps happening in the 30th or the 50th or the 100th episode, you really want to have a reason for it, or it can get old and distracting. Just like if a punk band plays songs with only three notes in the bass line in their first record, that is potentially a fun expression of youthful exuberance. But if they're still doing it on their fifth album, then they might just suck at songwriting. On that note, let's get back to the adolescence. Up front, I'm probably not going to recommend you buy this album based on the merits of the music per se. Amoeba is probably the only song with any potential at wide appeal, and even then it's probably only punk fans that will really enjoy it. But, of course, I am a punk fan, and maybe you are too. The first few tracks are simplistic. Now, simplicity is not necessarily a bad thing, especially in an early punk record, but I do tend to want a bass line to have more than three notes. These songs are sing-song, almost like nursery rhymes except angry. They're delivered in a nasal yell and are about how the world has problems, man, and one of those problems is that mom and dad are mean. Mercifully, the whole record is not like this, so it's easy to contextualize these tracks as charming songs by angry teenagers. From the second demo on, things get better. Bass lines get more sophisticated, guitar playing actually becomes competent, Soder learns to use his delivery to better advantage, and the lyrical content gets more interesting and less complainy. It's very clear at which point the band recruited some older and more mature members, notably a former guitarist and drummer from Social Distortion. They only hung around for one demo, and that demo is clearly sort of the best one. And yes, that's the demo that contains Amoeba. Some of these songs, mostly on side two of the record, have really interesting songwriting choices in terms of rapidly changing time signatures and dynamics. Ultimately, the record is redeemed very strongly by these later tracks, and you can see why these guys did end up with a long career amongst a small but dedicated audience. In short, it's clear that the band members are maturing and honing their craft over the course of this record. One thing that's interesting are several really dark songs, like Richard Hung Himself, which basically is what it says on the box. California punk has this very interesting split character that eventually led to the pop-punk and hardcore split within the genre. But back before this split, many punk bands liked to write songs that basically contained the plots from bad horror movies and gloried in the shock value. You can see something similar in early Offspring tracks like Beheaded. I think the point may have been thematic, in the sense that the defining characteristic of the horror genre is that the good guy doesn't necessarily win and it doesn't portray us as living in a moral universe. That is a very punk kind of theming. Of course, it also lets teenagers act like tough guys by talking about gross stuff. As a general comment on the lyrical content, we're not dealing with Shakespeare here, but the songs stay pretty on message for early California punk. Things are bad. We don't know how to fix it. Making this music to call out how bad things are is all we could really think of, but we're going to do that as hard as we possibly can. Having the music and content be unpleasant was often not just imposed by technical constraints, but fed into a part of that larger theme. In that vein, I really appreciated the song Adolescence, despite it being one of the very early and thus musically simplistic songs. The lyrical content best sums up this wider theme of kids feeling hopeless in the face of mistakes being made by adults, combined with the need to do something. 
It strikes me as similar to songs being produced by Minor Threat around that same time in the DC hardcore scene, and they ring as movingly pertinent to modern concerns in the era of Greta Thunberg. In short, these songs spoke to and helped define the zeitgeist of that particular time and subculture, while still having something to say to a modern listener. I found the experience broadly enjoyable. The music has energy, and as angry as they undoubtedly are, the band is happy to be doing what they are doing, and we all need that in our music sometimes. Most of the times. That said, and to repeat myself, I'm not going to sit here and tell you to run out and buy this, especially on vinyl. The record will appeal to fans of the band and weird record store guys like me. There's no secret nugget of awesome aesthetic experience to be had here. Uh, that said, if you're the kind of person who likes early lo-fi punk records, this is definitely that. There's fun to be had in listening to this, and some of the mature songs are genuinely good. There are really interesting things that happen on side two of this record. And, you know, so if, if you like that kind of genre, this might actually be for you. Essentially, for most people out there, I'm not going to warn you off of buying it if you're interested. The second side, like I said, is particularly good, and I definitely found myself rocking out by the end. It was definitely worth for however much money I paid for it, however many years ago that was. Okay, folks, that's it for the adolescence. Next time out, we will actually be staying in Southern California as I undertake the potentially embarrassing process of explaining why I own Sing the Sorrow by AFI. You will not want to miss that little experience, so go ahead and give the album a listen on your streaming platform of choice in preparation for the next episode. As usual, I will post links in the show notes for potential ways to listen to this, but they are just suggestions based on what is available at the time to me. Your results may vary. But until then, enjoy, and I hope you find the answers that you seek in your own record collection. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.